Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Roshana Green, a nonprofit executive and forest yoga lineage guardian. She describes the life-altering moment when her mother's mental illness took over their lives. Taking charge of her mother's care and all of the complications of such care, her unwavering love and resolve to care for her mother teaches her the greatest lesson of all, unwavering love and resolve to care for herself. Please welcome Roshana Green. So welcome, Roshana. I always start the conversation off by asking that one big question. And that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? That is a big question. You know how to start a conversation. (laughs) And when you ask me that, the first thing that comes to mind is before I started business school, 2004, I was living in Houston with my mother. And unbeknownst to me, my mother had been struggling with uh, schizophrenia her entire life. But raising four children, somehow she managed to keep it all together until triggering event was my youngest sister leaving the nest. And this was happening around the same time I was setting out to start business school. And she sort of had this major psychotic break that not to make her what was going on with her about me solely, but it did was a a pivotal turn for me because it sent me into a cycle that I battled most of my life of trying to balance self-care with care of others, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Can we, so can we go back to your mom's schizophrenia? Do you have any history in terms of how she was um, being treated, for instance? She was never being treated before. She'd never been diagnosed. She was never being treated growing up as a child. I'm the oldest of four. Looking back on some behaviors of maybe paranoia and anxiety that we didn't quite catch on to and take to be anything out of the norm, given where how we were growing up. I grew up in very poor neighborhoods. It wasn't like the safest or the best of neighborhoods. So some of her paranoia seemed justified, right? It seemed like a reasonable response to what was going on around us. A mother would have to desire and desire and keep her children safe. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Looking back, you could see some of the signs with this new information we were coming into at that point. And how old was she at this point? Oh, I'm going to do some quick math in my head. She was in her mid-50s. Wow. Okay, I'm in my mid-50s. So what most people know about schizophrenia is that it starts to show itself or present in people in late adolescence, early adulthood, right? So like 18, 19, 20, that time period. Do you know if she had started experiencing that for herself in her own history at that point? In conversations with her about this 
in more recent years, I don't get that she had a knowing of what that was. But the reality of that is that she lost her mother at the age of 10. Her last probably couple of years with her mother were spent caregiving um, as she was she was dying. And after she passed, then there were several years of being jostled around with her siblings and half-siblings, a little time in foster homes, and then being jostled between different relatives and eventually settling with her father. So I think there was so much unresolved trauma there that it was just easy to miss those signs. Like you said, that presentation happens during that time. I think it was just missed in a situation where there's a father who's lost and the mother of his children, just trying to hold things together. Everyone, especially, and it's so prevalent in the Black community, and especially during those times, this the generational approach or lack of approach to just mental health care. Clearly, these were children, and this is a family that could have used the support and help of some therapy and some help in processing this trauma they were moving through, and none of that existed. None of that was happening for them. She got the sense that whatever she was going through was something she bottled up and shoved somewhere deep inside and was just putting her head down and getting through. And I would imagine, you know, as she starts to feel chaos in the mind, if your everyday life is chaotic, it's hard to discern for yourself, right? Whether this chaos in the brain is being caused by the chaos in your outside world. So when you go back to your mother's psychotic break and you were given the diagnosis, I'm sure all of you, you and your siblings, must, it must have been a shocking moment. What was the process for her to start to deal with her illness in that institutional setting? Well, I have to say it was quite disorienting. I had to forcibly have her institutionalized to start to get some care, which is in and of itself a very traumatic event to experience. Your daughter, your child is saying something's wrong with you that you're not connecting with. And next thing you know, you're being held somewhere against your will. So very disorienting, compromising trust. Can we also allow the audience to understand the difference between if she had admitted herself versus being admitted by someone else that in a way her legal rights are no longer quite the same? Oh, yes. Thank you for asking that. It's a big difference. Her legal rights and her just personal autonomy were completely disrupted at that point because she was committed. I could demonstrate that she was at risk of being a harm to herself and others uh, in this deeply um, psychotic state she was in. And as a result, the healthcare professionals uh, involved decided it was best that she'd be held for, you know, a couple weeks to watch her to decide what a path forward could look like, um, especially involving some medication to help, like you said, loss of rights, a loss of autonomy. So where is she today? Because I know for a lot of people who are prescribed psychopharmaceuticals, you know, one of the the most uh, disappointing aspects of it or discouraging aspect of it is are the side effects, right? Yes. And sometimes for some people, the side effects are so severe that they would rather just 
not stay on the meds, right? And and try to exist to the best of their abilities in the world. So where is your mother today in terms of her um, sort of dealing with her illness? Honestly, I'm happy to report that she's living on her own with her dog. I got her during the pandemic. She's taking her, her meds, which like, but the arc from there to here was a long and windy path with, with many bouts of discontinuation of drugs for those reasons you mentioned. Some of the medications that she used early on made her feel very flat emotionally. I, I think you were, you were sort of touching into that. She felt disconnected from her more creative self. My mother is a very gifted seamstress and just has always been very uh, talented uh, artistically. I remember from such a, a young age and I could see that she felt a bit dulled and which would lead to discontinuation of the drugs. And over the course of these many years since that first hospitalization, it's had to occur a couple more times, you know, and there've, there's been change of medications and some side effects from discontinuing that we've had to navigate as well. So it's been been a bumpy road, but all in all, she's doing pretty well now. So let's go back to that moment when she did have her break, because you made reference to the fact that you had started your uh, MBA program. So where were you physically, geographically, A, and then B, did you have to take any time off from school to kind of deal with the realities of your mother's illness? Uh, in hindsight, I think it may have been. I'm still torn on whether or not it'd been better to take time off. I did not. I tried to do all the things to continue forward with my choice and my path that I'd started to embark on that that education. My mother was in Houston, and fortunately, I was doing business school at University of Texas at Austin. And what it looked like was a lot of back and forth. So not being able to step into this future path I wanted to embark on without making space, like constantly figuring out how I could make space to make the trips back and forth to be available for consultation and conversations with their healthcare providers about what the best path forward was. I was so happy to be able to be there and be close, but it was very disruptive, to put it mildly. I would imagine. I can't imagine, actually. As the caretaker, I'm assuming because you were the oldest, that that responsibility fell to you specifically. But did you also feel a kind of responsibility to your siblings? Absolutely. My dynamic in the family is as the oldest child and as oldest children do. <laughs> I felt that was my responsibility. I felt it was my responsibility to do the heavy lifting, to do the hard work, that it is a very difficult thing to be in that moment where you're taking that choice away from your parent, where you're stepping in a caregiver role and you are trying to do what you think's best for them, even if they don't see it. And especially when they don't see it and they think that you're actually doing them harm. I wanted to take the brunt of all of that. I did not want my siblings to be on the receiving end of any of that. So how did you cope? Because you sound so, I don't know, sanguine about the experience in your telling. And I would imagine that 
the emotional fallout for you personally being a caretaker. And like you said, and it's the truth, institutionalizing your own mother and at the same time trying to find and accomplish your own dreams. So what what was the emotional fallout for you like? And are you still kind of parsing through that for yourself? It's funny you ask that. Because I was actually on the verge of tears. When you I think I've I I know how to tell the story. It does come across initially as sanguine, but it's hard. I think what I led with was it's that it was a pivotal moment for me because the guilt around wanting to focus on yourself. Because you would view that as being selfish, right? Absolutely. Wholeheartedly at that point in my life, that 100% felt like a selfish feeling, a selfish thought to be able to focus, to desire, to have. I felt guilty for having the thought, but I, at the same time, I was grateful to be able to step in and be of service and to take care of my mother who carried. There was no way I'd be able to do the things I'd already begun to do. I was doing this business school program after doing my undergraduate at Dartmouth. My mother, <laughs> we navigated upbringing in these less than ideal neighborhoods and situations. And I rose above those things and, and my mother was able to get me to an Ivy League college. And can you tell the audience what it is you do professionally now? Professionally now, I do a couple things. I'm the director of equity and strategic partnerships at Nalanda Institute, which is a nonprofit focused on programming around compassion and mindfulness. And uh, in addition, I also teach yoga and meditation. I know that that question was kind of a trigger for you. And I think what I was trying to get at is even for those of us in my age bracket, we're now confronting taking care of our parents, right? Because they're elderly and there are all sorts of responsibilities that are being foisted upon us. I can say that from my experience and sort of observing and talking to peers that everybody has some amount of just a tiny bit of resentment that this is happening to them, right? That they have had to take on the load of being a parent to their parent. Yet at the same time, they're driven to do it because they are our parents and we love them. And we think about all the sacrifices that they had made for us. So I'm imagining that sort of straddling those two worlds was challenging, but did you survive it by compartmentalizing it or were you just allowing yourself to experience what you're experiencing, allow the emotions to be present, but also trying to be very present in taking care of your mother? I wish that I was that skillful when this began, having some balance in how I was processing things. I began with compartmentalization. It's like it's here in this box and I'm going to set it to the side when I'm here, which for anyone who's tried this approach, it is not the most successful and useful because despite the fact that you think you've put something in a box and put a lid on it and set it on a shelf, it's still bubbling up within you. It's still impacting you. And so that wasn't it. I then moved into prioritizing caring for my mother over everything that was going on in my world. I didn't cancel anything per se, but it definitely was getting less energy. And I made a priority in all ways from a time perspective, a financial perspective, decision-making perspectives. I was prioritizing care for my mother. So 
bit of an overcorrection, but it was part of my process. And that had its fallout in a variety of ways. Well, yeah, because just think about the word that you use, prioritize. That's a very loaded word. With it comes a set of responsibilities that you're taking on. You're like, this is my priority. This is my responsibility. This is what I am here to do. So it's it's interesting that you chose the word. So in the next phase, the overcorrection hopefully got corrected. I did a couple things. One, I put myself last, right? So things starting to fall apart in my world. Financial setbacks, just my own care, like health. I wasn't having any major health issues, but I just wasn't taking that daily care, that weekly care, that routine care one should for themselves. And it has a wear and tear on you mentally, emotionally. The other thing was that in making it my priority, I was creating, not just create a story, write an entire book series around how (laughs) this was my job and my responsibility and that I, it's easy to, in those spaces to get into this mindset that you're doing it alone is so hard. Nobody's helping you. But the reality is, what part of that are you creating? Was I creating space to be helped? Was I asking for making room to be helped? And the answer was no, I wasn't. I was choosing to shoulder that burden. I had trouble saying the word burden because that feels wrong. Yeah. And it feels like a a betrayal, right? It does feel like a betrayal to use the word burden. So at what point did you arrive to where you are today? Because you sound, A, your mother's doing much better, thank goodness, right? And I can imagine the journey was eventful throughout the whole process. And arriving to the space of you, Roshana, today, where Roshana's like, I know how to carve out time for myself. I know how to prioritize my needs ahead of anyone else's needs without viewing it as selfishness. Where are you today in terms of that process? Well, I'll answer that first question of how I got here. A big turning point was taking my forest yoga foundation teacher training in 2015. I was in the process of being laid off of a job. The best notice you could ever hope for from a company, like a almost a six-month notice, I was getting a severance package, so it was not like a sad story. But what it created was a space. And so then that practice, my practice in forest yoga uh, is something that brought me to an introspective, contemplative way of being and living. And that created this pivot where this led me to this world I, I really work in now in all ways, both within this, the institute I work for and and also outside of it. One where that's very much in alignment with how I'm trying to live my life and be for myself and for others for the greater good of the collective and that I get to help bring teachings to people that hopefully helps them find that balance more smoothly and sooner. So When you unpack this period of your life, have you had a moment, and I ask this because I've had different guests um, tell me stories, like one was a cancer patient who had survived cancer, and she had been very stoic and very focused on her rehabilitation and getting better. And many months later, one day out of the blue, she's standing on some street corner and she burst into tears. The trauma of her experience 
came to her in a big crashing wave in that moment. So I was curious if you've had that experience of like trying to unpack the trauma that you experienced. And then was there a moment where it was like that tsunami just came over you emotionally and psychologically? That tsunami waves of of that happened really in my teacher training. It really was. When had I taken time, carved out time to really be with myself and be with what I was really feeling, what I was feeling resentful about, what I was feeling wanting to focus on, like just wrestle with and wrangle all of the complex emotions that were within me. I was never taking time to sit with and be with that. I was just moving through things, just getting things done, putting my head down. Like your mother. Like my mother. I was doing what I learned what I saw my mother do, which to take a step back, it's like, well, she didn't do that bad of a job. Like, look at what she did with four children, with little resources, not asking for help, which I learned not to ask for by watching my mother do the same thing. It took a while to like unravel that because that wasn't that bad to just like put your head down and get through it and not spend time wallowing in your misfortunes or what didn't go the way you wanted it to go. But that takes its toll. Right. It comes at a cost. Your mother was able to survive it for, I don't know, 20 some years, uh, battling the mental demons that must have plagued her every day. And the fallout was that she had an absolute psychotic break. You know, as I sat, stepped back and, and looked at everything that was coming up for me, I also had a desire I didn't want that to be a path. I didn't want that slamming into a wall, falling apart, breakdown, mental health issues run in my family. That brings me to a question, um, and you made reference to it in the very beginning of our conversation, which was the fact that mental health issues are so rarely addressed in the African-American community. Yes. And it goes beyond the normal societal stigmas associated with mental health. And I say that as a person who suffers from mental illness, that there's still such discomfort, even among all my friends who are all in therapy or on some sort of uh, pharmaceutical cocktail themselves, but that there is this real cultural stigma to it. And then multiply that by a thousand in the African-American community where I would imagine resources are scarce to for people to be diagnosed and treated. And then more importantly, culturally, not having it understood at all. Absolutely. The combination has been, I'm going, going to call it a silent killer. You know, that, com- that combination has been really rough to navigate within the African-American community. And so coming from that background and being able to look into your lineage and see how it's impacted your family. It was something, I was just being struck with all this new awareness and also the knowledge that, I don't want to say this is avoidable, like we can avoid everything that we're going to navigate as we navigate the ups and downs of our mental, physical health. However, there's so much I could do differently, right? It's like being more aware of How am I processing traumas or stress? Am I choosing to use of resources that I I am aware of, even if I don't didn't at the time have a 
therapist, you know, in my speed dial. I know these people exist. Like, why am I not reaching out for that help? But even say, make saying that that sentence, like, why am I not reaching out for that help? I mean, the first barrier is breaking through and breaking the pattern of putting your head down, acknowledging that it's okay to ask for help, to get that assistance, that it doesn't make you lesser than. It doesn't make you less capable. It honestly just makes you human. And do you think that that's also your mom, the way she handled her life, you know, um, the circumstances is also very cultural as opposed to it being personality or human nature driven? Very cultural, uh, tying back to what you said about the struggle in the African-American community in general. It's a cultural thing, especially my mom, some of her siblings, uh, the baby boomer generation coming from parents and grandparents who've come through it's like slavery, post-slavery, and this desire to move beyond like the the struggles of the past and to try not to feel like you're wallowing in them, that you're ho- letting them hold you back. And there's a difference between and a distinction in not being stuck in the past. That distinction very often was not being made at all. It was, that's the past. We want to move beyond that. Let's not spend time thinking about, talking about, wallowing in that. Let's just put our heads down and let's move forward, which becomes a, a, a way of just being in the world, which doesn't, and surviving instead of processing, being with what's happening to your and has happened to you, healing and moving into thriving. From the standpoint of understanding all of the cultural and historical reasons why, does that give you a perspective to kind of separate, you can kind of intellectually, you know, parse out how you don't have to repeat that history, right? And and continue to repeat it generation after generation. Oh, absolutely. Being able to see that so clearly it's another inflection point. It's a, a fork in the road. It's like, do I want to repeat that cycle? Do I want to break it for one for myself so I can really live my most present, joyful life and also be like a living example of that for whoever, you know, I become, you know, a mentor, an ancestor, you know, too right? An example of this is what it looks like to break that. You you don't have to repeat it. And so in your work, do you sometimes understand the boundaries for yourself? Because your nature is to, again, take care of everybody else, right? Put your head down and just like prioritize everybody else except Roshana. So have you gotten to a space because what you do professionally is all about, <laughs> yes. thing, right? Have you gotten to a, a space in your own self where you can clearly draw demarcation lines and redraw boundaries that have to do with you and about yourself? And again, still not viewing that as some act of selfishness, that your needs are as important, if not more so than everyone else's. That is my daily practice. And what's beautiful about that is I get to practice what I teach, which is. I always remember my personal mantra, if I can't find another, what I always land on is 
put your oxygen mask on first. That is the the phrase that gets me to check in with myself to see, do I have my moments where I can see myself sliding back into this uh, behavior of depletion where I'm giving, giving, giving and not taking care of myself? Of course, I'm human. But what I'm really good at now is when I catch myself in that imbalance, I don't attack myself for having fallen into that pattern. There's no no guilt in taking some time back from some things, saying no, better boundary setting. I don't feel guilty about that anymore. And what that looks like is saying no to some things, whether it's saying no if I actually don't have the bandwidth to do it. It's asking my siblings to help with something we can divide and conquer. I'm getting really good at that. That's a really great place to end. If you could sit with someone from the future, the past, or present, who would that person be and why? What pops into my head is Malcolm X. Oh, cool. And why? I think about the arc of his entire life, but the arc of his time in in view of the world. So I have this deep curiosity to like really understand like the inner workings of his mind and his heart and what shifted in him in his alignment with these different like groups, ultimately where he landed before he died, what he thought was the best approach to healing the racial divide that still plagues us now. That's beautiful. If people want to reach out to you, or how can they find you? They can find me Instagram is, is a place to find me if they're on Instagram. Roshana G is my Instagram handle. Website, new website coming soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, woulda. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.